This episode of Local Knowledge is brought to you by Ping, the family-owned company that's been helping golfers enjoy the game for more than 60 years. What started in the garage of a frustrated golfer has grown into one of the most respected equipment brands in the game by bringing golfers what they want most, lower scores. And with a power at the last, it is a nerveless, it is a faultless performance from 24-year-old Colin Morikawa, who wins on his open debut. Here it is, biggest moment of a legendary career. Phil defeats Father Time. But here it is, the return to glory. Fitzpatrick is a champion again at the Country Club in Brookline. The Open Championship, the U.S. Open, the PGA Championship, the Masters. Pro Golf's calendar is teeming with events, but those four weeks always feel different. Sure, they offer some of golf's biggest purses, but their prizes go way beyond a dollar amount. These are the tournaments players get pumped up for most. These are the champions that history will remember. And these are the events that make or break golfers' legacies. Major championships create a special buzz and draw wall-to-wall coverage. Heck, even your friends who aren't golf fans talk about golf during those weeks. And a guy like Mito Pereira could wind up winning 20 PGA Tour titles in his career. But unless he wins at least one major, he's going to be known on your group text chain as that guy who gave away the 2022 PGA Championship on the final hole. This is a strange follow-through. I I mean, that is a frightening follow-through. But has it always been like that? Have the majors always dominated the conversation so much? And is it possible that we've reached a point where these tournaments mean too much? I'm Alex Myers, and this is Local Knowledge, where we take a deep dive into some of the game's most compelling stories. In this episode, we examine pro golf's four men's major championships, how they came to be, how they've grown in importance, and whether their place in the pro golf landscape makes sense. They're played on often, typically, historic, great, interesting, beautiful golf courses. Um, the trophies have names that, you know, those of us who follow the game closely know a lot about, we're invested in it. And, uh, and as the golf world expanded exponentially, literally across the world, These four Grand Slam events, the professional men's events, represented the four occasions where we got the best players in the world all together in one place. I think we can all agree on that definition of major championships from Michael Bamberger, a longtime SI and Golf Magazine writer now at the Firepick Collective. There's a bit of a chicken and egg scenario when it comes to these big events and the historic venues they're usually tied to, but clearly the combination of an important trophy, a well-known course, and a strong field creates that big-time atmosphere that was just felt at the Country Club for the 2022 U.S. Open. I mean, the place is called The Country Club. It doesn't get more historic than that. And it doesn't get more important than The U.S. Open, especially if you're an American golfer and it's your national championship. So it makes sense that would be considered a major. But why has the golf world collectively settled on this particular foursome? 
let's take a look back because the timeline is a bit messy. In the beginning, there was the British Open. Excuse me, the Open Championship. At least when it comes to majors. Starting in 1860, it's by far the oldest of the four majors, and it was clear from the start that those competing in it were playing for something big. A big belt, in fact, that was up for grabs for a decade before the introduction of the Claret Jug in 1872. Not sure why they wouldn't keep passing around the belt too, but regardless, there was always a cool prize on the line. Then the US Open popped up in 1895, we note that because, as many golf fans know, the U.S. Amateur, in addition to the British Amateur, which was first played in 1885, were originally considered golf's majors along with the two Opens. This was never more apparent than in 1930, when Bobby Jones captured all four to complete the Calendar Grand Slam, and a ticker tape parade was thrown for the legendary amateur golfer in New York City. Prior to that, however, the PGA, or Professional Golfers Association Championship, was first played in 1916. And even before that, there were pro tournaments like the Western Open, the Metropolitan Open, and the North and South Open that were all considered major tournaments at various points as well. Here's Golf Channel's Jaime Diaz. The Western Open was the Western Golf Association. That was a big deal. That was, gotcha. you know, half of the United States. And then the Met Open was a really big deal. Mm. And because, and it still is, you know, the uh, Metropolitan Golf Association is still one of the premier golf associations. It's New York. It's big market. And they had big prize money in the 30s. Byron Elch used to say that was a major to him when he won at the Met, Met Open in, in the 30s. But it all got over overtaken once the Masters sort of... And, you know, it's an interesting question. When did the Masters become a major? Because there's really no definitive you know, decision on that. Uh, it's opinion. Ah, the Masters. Started in 1934 and co-founded by Jones, who was still one of the most famous athletes on the planet at the time, it quickly grew in stature. At some point, there was a shift to thinking the four majors should all be professional tournaments and having the Masters as the fourth, along with the U.S. and British Opens, as well as the PGA Championship, just made the most sense. Well, it evolved over time, but generally they're the best golf courses with the toughest setups and they gained prestige and they were, they were you know, run by a, a ruling organization like the USGA or the RNA. Uh, the Masters wasn't probably immediately a major, but, you know, it had a lot of prestige because of Bobby Jones and Cliff Roberts made it kind of special. And the PGA is a, a venerated organization. So I think that gives them a head start as far as individually being important. Now you got to live up to it. And they have, which is why they're still considered the four majors today. And events like the Western Open, the Met Open and the North and South Open have all faded in significance. Still. It wasn't a completely smooth ride once these four rose above the rest. When Ben Hogan won three majors during his historic 1953 season, he couldn't even compete in the PGA to complete the calendar Grand Slam because it overlapped with the Open Championship. And when Jack Nicklaus won his 18th and final major at the 1986 Masters, CBS's crew called it his 20th because of his two U.S. amateur titles. The Golden Bears equipment sponsor, McGregor, even made a special edition club with 20 stamped on it in honor of the accomplishment. Nicholas seems to have changed his tune regarding his major total as well. At that point, he believed his two U.S. amateur titles should count. But in a 2017 interview with Golf Channel, he said, I don't think the amateur is a major today. I think 18's the right number. Then he added of Tiger Woods, who won three U.S. amateurs, I don't think it was really a major when Tiger played it. Hmm. 
Regardless of how many majors Nicholas is given credit for, he can certainly take a lot of credit for how we treat these events. It's funny. I think there's definitely a steady climb of importance for the majors, especially when Jack Nicholas started talking about them a lot. Nicholas didn't just talk about them a lot. He prepared for them a lot. He set his schedule around them, famously not playing the week before so he could get to a major venue early for extra practice. And soon, others, including Tiger, followed. That was carried on by Faldo. He didn't have the stature of Nicholas, but he definitely focused on majors. And, you know, as a result, I think was kind of in a special category as a player because he didn't win a lot on the regular tour, but Mm -hmm. he was at his best in majors. And it was like, okay, you know, those must be the best events because he has the most complete game. And that's what he focuses on. And then, of course, Tiger. Uh, who was chasing Jack and wanted to be part of history. Tiger's kind of an old soul in terms of, you know, wanting to measure up to the greats of the past. Bamberger agrees, but believes the bigger shift in the public perception of the majors occurred thanks to Tiger, or more specifically, the coverage of Tiger. Tiger grew up on Nicholas. Uh, Whether it's been exaggerated over the years or not, Tiger talked about from the time he first started playing golf on national stages the greatness of nicholas's let's call it 18 but you could call it 20 grand slam titles and uh and tiger has talked repeatedly all through his career about how he would try to taper like a swimmer um in that same period 97 right through today there's been an explosion in golf media does tiger need 18 majors to be the goal in golf? No, for me, yeah, he needs it. Um, you know, for me, it's like Jack Nicholas is at 18. He's got five. He's won the Masters five times. Jack Nicholas has won it six times. Uh, I'm just of the mindset that, you know, when Tiger was playing and when he was rolling uh, universally, he was recognized as the greatest anybody had ever seen. But the drop-off was so precipitous. I mean, it was so glaring. That's where this really, really hits home. In addition to mainstream outlets like ESPN paying more attention to golf, The growth in coverage was also helped by the Golf Channel, which went live in 1995, the year before Woods won an unprecedented third consecutive U.S. Amateur and turned pro. The timing couldn't have been better for a network struggling to fill airtime with golf equipment infomercials. By the way, we did a local knowledge podcast on that as well. Go check it out, after you finish listening to this one, of course. Anyway, suddenly men's pro golf had a built-in compelling narrative with Tiger as Jack's heir apparent. And with those 18 majors as the perfect measuring stick between the game's greatest champion ever and its newfound superstar. But the biggest part of it was that there was a natural interest in the majors that stemmed from the game's by far most dynamic player, Tiger Woods, who talked about the majors all the time. Um, To be honest with you, that winning a major early, um, I always had envisioned it. So it's really not that big a surprise. Uh, for me to do it. The fashion I did it is a surprise. You know, the win by 12, that's more than I ever dreamt of. But to win a major by 21, I kind of thought I would do it by 22 or so. So I kind of beat my own expectations. Okay, you're a little bit ahead of schedule. Yes, a year. Yeah. He also seemed to win them all the time, at least for the first dozen years of his pro career as he racked up 14. Shattering Jack's record seemed inevitable. And then, well, you know the rest. Injuries. Scandal. Swing changes, more injuries. Woods finally added a 15th major at the 2019 Masters, breaking a nearly 11-year drought in the game's four biggest events. 
Suddenly, the chase was back on until Woods suffered his most devastating injuries yet in a February 2021 car crash. Now, with Woods having passed the age Nicholas was for that iconic 1986 Masters victory, the odds of him reaching 18 seem very unlikely. Since the majors have been somewhat of a moving target historically, though, you could always go back to counting the U.S. Amateur, toss in the Players' Championship and the Western Open as majors, and suddenly Jack and Tiger are tied with 25. Just saying. When you're a family-owned company like Ping that's been in the golf business for more than 60 years, it's clear you've earned the trust of generations of golfers. If you've ever played a Ping driver, iron, wedge, or putter, you know what we're talking about. The engineers at Ping go to great lengths to make sure their newest products are always better than the previous version. They like to say the product speaks for itself. We've heard that a lot. So if you haven't tested one of their products, it's time for you to experience a Ping custom fitting. They fit every club in the bag to help you play your best, from the popular G425 family to their newest products like the I525 iron, Glide 4.0 wedges, and PLD milled putters. And once you've been custom fit, your clubs are custom built to your precise specifications. You can't get any more custom than that. Learn more about what sets Ping apart at ping.com. Woods was obviously better than most when it came to handling the immense pressure of such a pursuit, especially considering he only added to that pressure by openly focusing on it. Others, not so much. Earlier, we mentioned Mito Pereira, who had one hand on the Wanamaker Trophy at Southern Hills before a double bogey on the 72nd hole left him one stroke out of a playoff won by Justin Thomas. Does he hit driver right into a creek if it's the final hole the following week at the Charles Schwab Challenge? Probably not. I believe Johnny Miller was on the on the mark when he said the most interesting thing about competitive golf is the pressure and who can handle it the best. And there's more pressure in a major. And it's not an accident the best players win it because being part of being the best player is being able to handle pressure. It's clear that golfers face more of that pressure during majors than regular events. Some of that is because they put that pressure on themselves. And yes, the media adds to it with all the extra scrutiny surrounding those weeks. It's what makes these events so meaningful and makes them stand out from a wraparound schedule that rarely takes a week off. As the pressure mounts and as the attention grows, I think it's tougher psychologically for modern players to win because there's so much weight given to majors that these guys almost resent it. Mm. You know, it's like too much pressure. What's funny is that they're still playing the same format of golf that they do almost every other week. And they're often even playing courses that have hosted regular tour events. Still, there's a different vibe and it shows up in different ways. Minutes before Mito Pereira had his final hole debacle, Rory McIlroy finished up what might be the most disappointing major performance of his career. Known for his slow start at majors during a near eight-year winless drought dating back to the 2014 PGA, McIlroy opened with a 65 to take the lead, then seemingly played himself out of it, only to rally on Sunday, then play himself out of it again. And Rory finishing up with this for par. About 12 feet coming up the hill. But Cole has just put his brain through the ringer again today. I mean, that had to be an extremely frustrating guy. We'd play the audio clip from his media scrum after he finished, but he bounced without even talking to a single reporter. That prompted Bamberger to write about whether pro golf has a problem if so much attention is paid to the majors. Here you have Rory McIlroy, one of the faces of the PGA Tour, a guy who has won four majors and won everything else possible these past eight years, not being able to cope with coming up short in one of the big four tournaments. Despite all his success outside of those four events, 
and even plenty of high finishes those weeks, including a runner-up at this year's Masters, he's almost been deemed an underachiever. Even worse, it seemed like he felt that way about himself by not answering questions after. Bamberger contrasted that with how an older player, Tom Watson, handled a much, much more difficult defeat at the 2009 Open Championship, in part because he came up in an era when the majors weren't such an all-or-nothing endeavor. Tom Watson, one of the great champions of all time, with a putt to win his sixth Open Championship, 40-odd days off his 60th birthday. A then 59-year-old Watson seemingly had the claret jug in hand and one of the most incredible victories in sports history before a bogey on the final hole put him in a playoff with Stuart Sink that he would eventually lose. When Watson came in from that crushing defeat, he had more of a sense of balance about it than we did. And he proved it by the way he carried himself. And if he was faking it, more power to him. Uh, because uh, it's actually part of the spirit of the game is to uh, is to handle defeat and setbacks with a sense of grace. To be clear, McElroy usually handles disappointment with grace and is one of the media's favorite players in the interview room. But is it bad for the game when arguably its biggest star can go eight years without winning one of the biggest events? Or put another way, would the game and McElroy himself be better off if we didn't put so much emphasis on the majors? Here's what he said after another disappointing finish in the following major at the 2022 U.S. Open. Well, again, if you can call a tie for fifth place in the U.S. Open a disappointment. Um, another top five in a major, if doesn't really, I guess, doesn't really mean anything, but... Um... That's tough. McElroy has also admitted to feeling immense pressure to complete the career Grand Slam, something he's had an opportunity to do at every Masters starting in 2015. And he's not alone in that pursuit. Phil Mickelson has been chasing it at the U.S. Open since 2014, and Jordan Spieth at the PGA since 2017. All three are trying to become the sixth golfer to pull off that feat, joining Jack, Tiger, Hogan, Gary Player, and Gene Sarazen. It would be one heck of an accomplishment, especially because today's players actually know about it. Arnold Palmer has been credited with coming up with the concept of the modern Grand Slam in 1960, or well after Hogan and Sarazen completed theirs. So all this attention to, uh, uh, oh, what's Rory McIlroy done in the majors? Justin Thomas has only won two majors. Uh, when is Jordan Spieth going to win another major? Uh, they're all understandable questions from sports writers and ordinary ordinary fans and all the rest, but they're also kind of self-defeating and not really. The questions themselves almost illustrate a very narrow view of, I would actually say, life itself, hmm. which I think should award the joy of actually just doing something that you love to do, playing tournament golf. There's also a mathematical argument to be made that we all overvalue majors. One of the main tenets that came from Michael Lewis's revolutionary book about Billy Bean's Oakland A's, Moneyball, is that clutch hitting in baseball is a myth. The thought being that if players had a large enough postseason sample size, their stats would regress to their regular season numbers. The best example of this is Derek Jeter, who played in a record 158 postseason games 
or essentially one full regular season. As a Yankees fan, I love the guy, but it's hard to argue that he had some sort of magical clutch gene when he hit 310 for his career in the regular season and a nearly identical 308 in the playoffs. So is there something like that in golf as well? Are the majors really that much more difficult to win than a regular tour event? Bamberger doesn't think so. The, the real math of these majors and their outliers like Colin Montgomery and Greg Norman is if, if you have really long careers like Phil Mickelson's and Jagger Woods and Jack Nicklaus, they win the same exact percentage of majors as they win ordinary tournaments. And the reason is because they're really good at golf. I crunched some numbers, and there's certainly truth to that. In fact, Jack Nicklaus almost perfectly fills in as golf's Derek Jeter with his vast resume. The Golden Bear won 73 of his 595 career PGA Tour starts, meaning he won at a 12% clip. His winning percentage at majors? 11%. Tiger has won 22% of his overall starts and 17% of his majors, which is very similar to Ben Hogan's 21% and 16% respectively. Phil Mickelson has won 5% of his major starts and 7% of his PGA Tour starts. Rory McIlroy's winning percentages are 9 and 8 and Ernie Els won both 4% of his PGA Tour and major starts. So, yeah, the numbers kind of check out. And if you gave pro golfers truth serum, especially ones who haven't won a major, you'd probably get more players agreeing those four events get assigned too much value. There's a feeling like, hey, we got the Players' Championship, we got the FedEx Cup, and we play every week, and those should count just as much. When I win one of those, I feel great. I beat the best players in the world. So quit telling me all about majors all the time. I'm not saying it's prevalent, but I hear it sneaking in. Taking things a step farther, there's a ratio that seems to develop among the great players. Like Bamberger noted, there are outliers like Norman and Monty. But for the most part, if you win enough PJ Tour titles, you're going to get your share of majors. The 39 players with 20-plus career PJ Tour wins have combined for 1,345 victories and 161 majors. That comes out to an average of 34.5 PJ Tour wins and 4.1 majors, or 8.4 wins per major. And when you start looking at the great players, that number holds up pretty well. Phil Mickelson has one major for every 7.5 PGA Tour titles. And after winning the 2022 PGA, Justin Thomas has the exact same ratio. So it's certainly possible that we overrate how difficult it is to win majors. After all, think about how many fluke winners there have been throughout the years, from Jack Fleck to Orville Moody. And then there's someone like Andy North. Obviously, you can't be a fluke and win two U.S. Opens, but the fact that those two majors account for two-thirds of his career PGA Tour titles is pretty darn fluky. And what do we make of Brooks Kepka, who has four majors despite only winning eight times total on the PGA Tour? Clearly, Kepka focuses more on the majors and is essentially admitted to focusing even less on regular tour events. Maybe it's really that simple, and he's really that good. More likely, though, he's just another outlier. Because despite him already having twice as many majors as Norman, it's hard to argue with certainty that Brooks is better than a guy who has 88 worldwide wins and spent 331 weeks at number one in the official World Golf ranking. But if you're going to go by majors in determining golf's GOAT debate between Jack and Tiger, well, sorry, Greg. There's different criteria, but that's why the majors has endured because since, since everything got shaken out and there's only four, it's the one apples-to-apples apples comparison you can make. How does the role majors play in golf compared to other sports structures? The best comp has to be tennis, 
an individual sport with a year-long series of smaller events around four Grand Slams. What's different is that those majors have been dominated by the same three players for nearly two decades. I mean, it's incredible. Ten years ago, they were one, two, and three. And they're one, two, and three right now. While golf has needed generations of players to have Nicholas come along and pass Walter Hagen, and then wait decades more for Tiger to even challenge Jack, the trio of Rafael Nadal, Roger Federer, and Novak Djokovic have all shattered previous Grand Slam marks while competing in the same era. And with Nadal's most recent French Open title, he now is 22 to the other two's 20. Remarkably, they've combined to win 62 of the past 75 Grand Slams. Tennis is actually more uh, outsized in terms of emphasis on majors than golf is. So this is a golden time, and I think tennis is thriving by making the majors the show. Mm. But I'm sure there's a lot of really good tennis players out there who make millions of dollars who never won a major. Right. You know, uh, and those guys are great players, but they would tell you, you know, even though there's nothing different really about the surfaces. In other words, you could play the Italian Open or the French Open. It's still on clay, mm-hmm. but the French is a major. Right. Okay, wow. It, history. It doesn't seem possible that it could ever be like that in golf. With a talent pool that only continues to get deeper, majors are being divided up more and more by modern players. There are also fewer fluke winners in tennis. So this is a formula that works well for their sport. In golf, not so much. During that same time, we've seen the top players almost always win the majors, but it's a bit of a revolving door. From the end of 2008 to the end of 2012, there were 16 consecutive majors won by different golfers. Yet during the Nadal-Federer-Djokovic era, golf has passed tennis in popularity and visibility, in large part, of course, because the Tiger era has beaten it in straight sets. Week-to-week tennis tournaments are rarely on the main networks, while you can almost always find the PGA Tour on NBC or CBS over the weekend. Is this the future fate of golf as well if the majors demand too much of the spotlight? Comparing golf to team sports like basketball gets even trickier, but there has also been a clear increase in the emphasis placed on how many rings or chips players win. LeBron James led teams to eight consecutive Eastern Conference titles, yet still drew criticism for a losing record in the NBA Finals. It's tough out there. Yes, a golfer has to beat more opponents to win one of those coveted four titles, but if you weed out the lower-ranked players who are unlikely to win, they certainly have plenty of opportunities to get the job done, especially considering how long a golfer's career is. And then there's a sport like Formula One, which rewards close calls in all its races. Those finishing in the top three get to come up on the podium and receive a trophy. Somewhere, Lee Westwood is jealous. 22-year-old Lando Norris was recently named the second most popular driver in the sport, despite the fact that he hasn't won a race yet. Norris does have six podiums to his name, though, and he thinks something similar makes sense in golf. You know, second and you're a loser, so it's uh, it's tough. I think maybe, you know, yeah, maybe just a little podium, you know, so P2 and P3 can be um, happy as well. You sort of put upon this pedestal of, of where the greats are and um, at the end of the day you only get four four attempts a year and that's if you're in them you know so some guys maybe don't play four and play one or two and um, you just yeah I mean to win one is is 
extra special and to win one is also extra impressive given that there's you know it's there's so so few of them and that's why tiger and and jack are, are, are the best that was part of matt fitzpatrick's answer to a question i posed to him on friday at the 2022 u.s open in which he said the majors are treated with the right amount of importance good for him to embrace that attitude and probably not coincidentally he went out and won his first major two days later well, second if you count his 2013 U.S. Amateur, also at the Country Club. In reference to Fitz bringing up Jack and Tiger, it shouldn't be too surprising that the two golfers with the most major victories probably have the most to do with these events reaching their lofty status. But with Nicholas long retired and Woods' window nearly shut, will that change how we look at these four events? It's getting more and more unlikely that Tiger can catch Jack, unless we change the major championship criteria as mentioned before. And it seems just as unlikely that any golfers among the younger generation can seriously challenge their numbers, in large part because there are so many great golfers among this younger generation. Someone like John Rahm has dared to say his goal is to pass Tiger's total. But as good as the Spaniard is, he's sitting on one major as he approaches his 28th birthday. Tiger had eight majors by that point in his career, including the Tiger Slam, in which he became the only player to win four consecutive professional majors. I think there's a little bit of a, I won't say a backlash, but uh, a changing narrative now. I think some of the younger players are saying there's too much emphasis on majors. Mm. And I think that's an interesting discussion. Uh, And I can understand their point of view. Well, you know, I I just think that they're getting harder to win because there's more depth. They're also realizing, you know what, I'm not going to catch these guys, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know. And now the majors find themselves in a peculiar spot with the inception of the Live Golf Series. The Saudi-backed venture with Greg Norman and Phil Mickelson as frontmen threatens to drastically alter the state of professional golf. But Bamberger believes golf's four biggest events might only become more meaningful. Those are entertaining exhibitions for big money, four-man, you know, the uh, the team events and 54 holes and courses with no rough and blah, blah, blah. But let's see them at something that really counts. Mm-hmm. 72 holes, four days. Uh, you know, you got to make it through the 36-hole cut to even play on the weekend. Course is really hard. Greens are really hard. Everyone's moaning about the, the greens and the rough and the bunkers and whatever other tricks they may have up their sleeve. I think would actually only uh, ratchet up. I, my opinion is over, over the next 5, 10, or 20 years, it would actually only uh, increase our appreciation of the majors. On top of that, with the PGA Tour fractured due to this renegade league, these four tournaments could be the only chance to see all or even most of the top players competing against each other going forward. That is, if the majors don't ban live golf participants like the PGA Tour has. As a result, the majors could grab an even bigger spotlight like they do in tennis, whether those competing in them like it or not. I understand it. But I still think, and it's not a perfect system, there's more continuity historically through majors than almost any other element when you're measuring players. Um, there's a lot of very variables, but there's fewer. To me, it's kind of like analogous to the official world golf ranking. Um, you know, not perfect. It's mathematical. I think it's a pretty good list. I mean, just from the eye test, whatever they come yeah. up with, I look at it, I go, that's, yeah, I'm, I'm good with that. Although in its infant stage, Live Golf seems destined to be the latest example that money can't buy you major status. It's something we've seen with the PGA Tour's FedEx Cup as well since its inception in 2007. You can't force a major. Nobody decides. 
you know, not the PJ tour, not the press, not the players, not the fans. There's no process. There's just this broad textured agreement as to what constitutes a major championship in golf. And that is the ultimate beauty of them is that there's actually no way to define what constitutes a major. All those components though, contribute to how much focus is put on these four events and how much emphasis will continue to be placed on them. The majors are clearly the sport's crown jewels, but there's possibly a danger that if they're held too tightly, the rest of golf's calendar could lose its remaining shine. I guess it's really such a fine balancing act of, you know, can we in the press keep uh, uh, some measure of balance about it? And can the players uh, do the same? Local Knowledge is produced by Gregory Gottfried with editorial guidance from Sam Wyman. Our music for today's episode is called On the Riverside, and it's by Lobo Loco. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe to Local Knowledge wherever you get your podcasts. And check out Golf Digest's weekly gambling podcast, Be Right. Thank you.